Welcome to Pet Chat on 2NURFM. Greg Richard here, joined by Cheryl Shaw and David Tabritz. Great to see you both back in the studio, guys. Oh, it's great to be here, Greg. <laughs> G'day, Greg. <laughs> Excellent. What have you got lined up for us today, guys? Oh, well, I'm going to be talking about my brooch today, which you didn't even notice, Greg. It's wow. Queen Bohemian Rhapsody. Okay, oh. you're going to have to fill us in. Okay. I'm looking forward to this one. You're looking forward to this one? Think about some of those lyrics, Dave. Uh, I, I'm terrible with lyrics. Are you? Yeah, I'll just make stuff up. Okay, so <laughs> thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening. Oh, okay. Okay, right. storm phobia for dogs. Ah, excellent. Okay. And if, if we get Jeez, time... that was off a long run-up, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Draw that bow. Um, I wanted to talk about desexing your pet. Oh, okay. What, yourself? Well, no, if it you, was you'd me... Get, you'd get, yeah, okay, I mean, yeah. Although, actually, obviously, you'd get someone like yourself to help. <laughs> Good point, because my pups are in for desexing today, and I am not doing that procedure. Uh, one of our other vets is doing it for me, so... Cheryl, what have you got for us lined up again today? With something to do with your brooch. <laughs> yes, well, it's gonna, always, to do, it's always to do with the brooch. I thought we'd talk about um, storm phobic behaviour in dogs because this time of the year, it's all about storms. We get a lot of storms through the summer, and dogs can be absolutely terrified. And unfortunately, so can some people. But we're going to talk about what happens with the dogs. The real problem is for the dog that they are so frightened that they act out of normal behaviour. So a dog that's normally quite calm can become so fearful that it can become aggressive or destructive. And some dogs get so scared that they try to, um, they panic and they try to get away from the situation of the storm. So they'll jump out of windows, they'll run long distances, they'll jump over fences, behaviour that they wouldn't normally do. And unfortunately, some of these things can result in accidents. Obviously, when they're running and they're, they're not constantly trading they can get hit by cars and David you'd see a lot of that through your practice through the winter or the summer storms and the winter storm times yeah it's well known actually that we do see a lot of uh, pets that the other thing is they'll injure themselves or they're strays yes and strays that are going to injure themselves so Nasty times. Yeah, a lot of dogs will um, take themselves into their crate if they're if they're confident with their crate, and other dogs will actually try to hide. So they'll go, you know, maybe under a bed or under a tight piece of furniture. They try to get into a small area just for for their own protection while the storm is happening. But I think what's really interesting about dogs is they can sense a storm is coming so much before their owners even know. They seem to have an inbuilt weather app. You know, they they're going, mm. hey, what's <laughs> there's a storm coming. And that's due to that barometric pressure changes. So as the static electricity alters, the dog knows, ha-ha, we're in for a storm event. And so often, you know, they'll be showing you signs that they're frightened well before you're aware that the storm is coming. Some of those signs for dogs can be things like that you'll notice that your dog well before that storm has happened, that they're drooling, they could be barking, whining. They can even become quite clingy. Some dogs will just be right by your side like Velcro. They just want to be near you. And other dogs will just, as I said, they'll just take off. They are so frightened. So it's really important to make sure that, um, you know, you don't actually feed the dog um, negative 
energy from yourself. Don't go picking your dog up to comfort the dog during a storm event because usually what we do when we do that is if we pick up the dog and we give it a cuddle, we change our voice while we're cuddling it. We go into this different toning and as we're speaking, we'll be going, oh, it's okay, don't worry. And the dog's going, ha-ha, she's speaking like that again. There's something to be worried about. So try to do something else. Maybe put on the Queen album and dance and sing around. <laughs> um, but, you know, just try and do something that's an activity that's happy and upbeat so your dog's not feeding off your emotions as well because that will um, create even more stress for the dog. Another thing is if you do have one dog that's storm phobic, if you get another dog or multiple dogs, those dogs also will become storm phobic because co dogs copy behaviour. And so I've ha actually had this as an experience when I had Irish setters. I had one lovely Irish setter, got a rescue dog, Irish setter, and my dogs used to run away every time there was a storm and you'd find them suburbs away. But fortunately, nothing ever happened. We were able to always re re get them home again. But these behavioural changes that happen in dogs can be quite severe. So sometimes you need to talk to your veterinarian about medication. Um, there are some great medications for dogs, um, but we just need to make sure that we're offering them a safe place. So make sure that if you are at home, that you put your dog somewhere where it's not going to injure itself and um, just try to make sure that yeah that you're you're not feeding that dog's um, negative energy you know when they're running they just want to get out they just want to get right out of here to quote queen again <laughs> but there are some things you can do you can get thunder shirts which work for some dogs so a thunder shirt's like a tight jacket that sits and causes pressure on the dog's body so a little bit like compression that you do when you've got a baby you're trying to swaddle it and make it more comfortable there's thunder caps which are sort of like this um, a cap that you put over the dog's head and it has a mesh that sort of blurs the vision a little bit so they work for some dogs but these things don't work for every dog if they're really really got these anxieties um, that for storms they often have separation anxiety those dogs that have storm phobic um, are often separation anxiety dogs as well but it, it is um, you know really important if you do see a dog out in a storm that you um, maybe pick it up if it's not your dog give it a safe haven until the storm's passed and try and relocate it with its owner yeah. or they could be like the ACDC song Thunderstruck. <laughs> oh, boy, Greg, you've got I us was, today. I was going to say they want to break free when they hear the storm, but... <laughs> wow. Oh. We'll, we'll leave it to the music experts. <laughs> yeah, <doing> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Paul from Chisholm, and he's got a question about... Is it Cushing, Cushing syndrome? Cushing's, yeah. Cushing syndrome wants to know the long-term prognosis. G'day, Paul. G'day, how are you? Good. How can we help today? Well, we've gone through the process of um, recognising these symptoms and gone to our vet, had blood tests, that, you know, not a uh, fairly uh, expensive exercise, but the, the, the official diagnosis is that the dog's got uh, Cushing syndrome. Now, she's a 14-year-old uh, Maltese miniature poodle cross. Uh, apart from that, she's in very healthy condition. The... Um, her weight has blown out from five kilos to seven, uh, but in the last three or four months, it's stabilised at that. Uh, yeah. She's got little warts uh, growing over her over her skin. Uh, her coat is thinning around her joints, uh, but not across her back. Uh, these are all, I understand, are symptoms of Cushing's. Uh, she is a fairly you know, voracious eater, but we're, we're controlling that at the moment. And intermittently, she has bouts of panting. Um, but apart from that, her breathing's fairly normal. Now, 
our, our vet is um, the difficulty we've got is that we're not being told that there is well, that there is a cure, and everything we read, we can't find anything to say that there's a cure. So we have to accept that. Um, but the vet has prescribed some medication, and I don't have that in front of me. But and it would be a long term thing. But when we ask the question, we're told at best it will just ease the symptoms. And this, again, that's quite an expensive exercise. So the, the key question is, if we do nothing, uh, what's the long-term prognosis? I mean, would would Cushing's kill it? You know, golf, we wouldn't want that to happen. Yeah. Um, the short answer is yes. Um, generally, with Cushing's, it's um, for a long time been thought of as more a quality of life issue rather than a longevity. However... Mm-hmm. I mean, thinking about a 14-year-old dog, um, and we might just step back a bit. What breed of dog did you have? Maltese cross poodle? Yep. Yeah, miniature poodle, yeah. Yep. So Cushing syndrome refers to an excess or the symptoms associated with an excess of cortisol in the body. Now, the cortisol is produced from an adrenal gland, which sits next to the kidneys, and um, it's under the control of a hormone that comes from the pituitary gland in the brain. Yep. So Cushing syndrome, there's two different types. One is where we have um, a tumour in the adrenal gland itself. So it's pumping out cortisol. And normally there's a feedback mechanism, but because of this tumour in the adrenal gland, it just keeps pumping it out. You know, And there's no response to the increased levels. Um, to shut down that production. The other, the second one, which is actually more common, is that there's what we call a microadenoma in the pituitary gland, or it's a micro tumor, and it's doing the same thing. It's pumping out more of this hormone called um, ACTH, which travels to the adrenal gland, and it basically just tells the adrenal gland to pump out cortisol. But again, the feedback mechanism is not working now. Cortisol is essential for life, um, you know, so if you took out, there's two adrenal glands, one on each side. If you took them both out, you would die almost mm. within about 12 hours. Um, so in some cases where there is an adrenal tumour, they can have surgery to remove it, but obviously it's only on one side. The quest- problem there is that there are risks, major risks associated with that procedure. Sure. Um, and, of course, if most of the dogs actually have a problem in their brain, then touching the adrenal glands themselves doesn't do anything, and that's why we end up using medication. Mm. Um, so coming further then with the medication that's available, there's a couple of different types, um, and they work in slightly different ways, but the most common one that we use is a drug called trilostane, and it blocks the conversion of cortisol in the tissue into um, and its impact um, into active forms that are causing a lot of the symptoms. So you're kind of correct, it will ease the symptoms. Now, the thing is, if we think of it as a quality of life, it's like those things that you mentioned, right? Increased appetite, weight gain, skin changes, um, and usually increased drinking. I gather that um, yeah, yeah, she's very, very thirsty. She'll drink, I oh, look, estimate at least 600 mil a day, which... Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd suspect she's probably drinking more than that. Mm. Um, I would have said more than a litre easily, depending yeah. on her body weight. Um, yeah. So the thing is, if we 
get control through the medication, we're going to reduce all of those things, which, as I said, is quality of life. But what are the things that you also asked me is, would she die from this disease? And there is evidence of uh, dogs suffering blood clots, um, high blood pressure, kidney disease, um, associated with excess cortisol, potentially an increased risk of other cancers as well. It also causes joint laxity um, and ligament injury as a ligament weakness, which can predispose to injury. So in all of those kind of external quality of life symptoms, but then you've got these other things. So it is worthwhile to treat them um, not just because of the quality of life, but because you would decrease the risk of the development of these potentially fatal problems, okay? Um, Okay. So if you did nothing, it's going to get worse and it's going to shorten her life. Um, Okay. One one other question then. The medication, um, and and again, I apologise, I didn't come prepared with the name of the one that's been prescribed, but they uh, say that they, they would need to do further regular blood tests to yep. basically check the process. Um, is that avoidable? Because, you know, this is starting to add up. <laughs> Not that I'm a grudge little dog, yeah. a lovely little creature, but, you know, I'm just trying to work out the best way forward. Uh, a lot of these chronic disease management involves a, a big investment, certainly up mm. front to get things going, and then there's regular monitoring. And yeah. so... Is it avoidable? It's probably the frequency is that you start off with an increased frequency of some blood testing to make sure things are okay. Getting the dose uh, that we start with and making sure that that's the correct dose. So we don't want to underdose and we don't want to overdose. The other thing is that with trilostane, it's relatively recent, I'm going to say, but trilostane has been around for 20 years, I'd say. Um, Prior to that, the drug that we used was a drug called mitotane. And if you gave too much mitotane, um, it could be quite toxic and mm. cause real problems. And when trilostane came along, it reduced the risk of that happening. However, uh, I've seen and it's now recognised uh, that dogs can get electrolyte abnormalities while they're on trilostane. So that that's one of the other functions of the adrenal gland is that it actually doesn't just produce cortisol it also produces um hormones that uh regulate the salt level in the body and so through the effect on the kidneys so you know we want to make sure that the sodium and potassium which are two of the key salts in the blood and in the tissue um are at the correct level because if they start to go you know haywire then you can get real problems that's less common but it's just something that we need to keep a watch on uh, usually the initial testing that you're referring to is trying to get the dose right, trying to make sure that, yes, it's actually yeah. working. Mm. Thank you very much. You've been a great help. No worries. Thanks, Thanks for the call, Paul. Okay. See, See ya. ya. Bye-bye. Right. Thanks, Paul. It's- and we've got Kath from Dorigan, and she's got a question about two budgies that are 14 months old. Yes, they won't bathe. They're not bathing? No. Can I get a bath? <laughs> <laughs> Do they need to? Is this a regular event every Sunday night or something in your place, Kath? Before when you saw us have a bit of a bath, but um, these pair, <laughs> the female might be frightened to bathe in front of the male. <laughs> <laughs> you think there's a privacy issue? Is that it? I don't know what it is. Yeah, I. 
they do a lot of birds and particularly you know budgies Australian natives and um, obviously in central uh, Australia they will congregate around waterholes and there's that opportunity but compared to things like water birds um, they don't their preen gland so birds all bird species anyway have a, a preen gland which sits above the base of the tail and it uh, secretes an oil and that's why they always turn around and rub their beak on the base of their tail and then they spread it around right so we see ducks and other water birds do that all the time um, because it's the the oil then repels water okay so the dry birds if you call them that i guess their preen gland is there but it's not as active and so Obviously, they don't need to. Don't need it, no. Yes, but I have a another problem with them. They chew up the paper in the bottom of the cage and push it up in a corner. Right. So, is it just the two birds that you've got? Yes, just the two. Okay. Here's some things we need to do with the with the cage. Um, do you have uh, uh, rods or dowels or something for them to sit on? We've got wooden dowels to sit on. Wooden dowels. Okay. What tends to happen um, with birds is if they're sitting on something that has the same diameter all the way along, it's actually going to cause pressure sores on the bottom of their feet. Okay. And we, I'm going to connect this back to what you said about the torn up paper. So it's a good idea is to get some uh, branches and put them in. Just check them for um, insects and things like that so you're not putting them into the cage. Have lots of them, and then I want you to get lots of foliage, leaf, eucalypt flowers, wattles, things like that, and have one area of the cage, maybe one whole side, that is completely covered with all these leaves and flowers. Now, the the other part of this is because you're putting in fresh leaf and things like that, you will need to clean it more, and you'll need to replace all that. Okay. Okay. But you need to put in enough to make it almost like you can't see the bird. Right. Okay. Then fine. Okay. Because what they'll do then is rather than tear up paper and build a nest or whatever it is, they'll do that with the leaf and the flowers, and they'll they'll just feel more secure if they've got that area that they can go and hide. So I, I always said to people, put enough stuff in your cage that the bird has an area that if they want to, they can hide and you can't oh, yes, can't see them. Okay. All right. Oh, okay, thank you very much. So do that and uh, I wouldn't worry too much about the bathing and maybe maybe the privacy makes a difference, but we'll see. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thanks, bye. Kath. See ya. Okay, bye. Maybe they could put in some little curtain dividers or something. Or yes, and we train them to actually pull the curtain across. Oh right, oh that'd be good. That'd be yeah, that'd be if genius. You do, if you can do that, Kath, and train them, <laughs> video it, send us a video to a new R, and put it on TikTok, and you'll probably be a millionaire by the. Oh, if, if funny same video was still around, oh. <laughs> if you stri- straight to number one. We've got social media now. We don't need funny as home video. <laughs> it's Pet Chat on 2 and URFM. And wrapping up today's show, we've got... Are we going to do it? No, we've got dissecting, I believe. Yeah, dissect, yeah. yeah we've... Well, good news, folks. I just got a call in the music break from yep. one of the vets and um, they've dissected my puppies all well, all successful. Oh, excellent, yes. Yes, we're all happy now. No 
no little pregnancies, but why do we do sex apart from, because I had two female puppies. So apart from the risk of pregnancy, what are some of the other reasons we want to de-sex is to prevent um, uterine infections, pyometras, right? But um, oftentimes also we talk to owners about the risk of mammary cancer. So generally we want to de-sex them at or just before their first cycle, so around this five and a half, six months of age, um, and that will reduce the risk of uh, later onset mammary cancer by 1,000%. Yeah, it's incredible. Now, if they go through a cycle, their first, it probably decreases the risk by about, um, uh, well, not back to zero, like it goes back to 1%. Sorry, when I said by 1,000%, I mean it goes to 0.01%, right? In which case, um, or 0.1%, I'm getting my decimals all confused. <laughs> What's going on? Uh, if you desex them later, then like if they, if a, a female dog has two heat cycles, the risk of later onset mammary cancer remains the same as if they had not been desexed. So then it's really about pregnancy and so on. Um, and the u uterine infection pyometra that we talked about. However, there has been more recently a, a kind of a push towards later desexing because of the risk of cartilage and joint problems. And so there's a lot of different advice that's going on around at the moment that don't get your dog desexed too early, you know, you can leave it till later. And the, the evidence of this is um, more uh, convincing, shall we say, in larger breed dogs. So these are the breeds that are more prone to the development of joint disorders like uh, osteochondrosis. And so we're thinking about larger breeds like shepherds and rotwheelers and um, oh, some of the other breeds we see. We do see it in cattle dogs and things like that. But any of the uh, Irish wolfhounds, yeah, those really nice. tall dogs um, that can get, <clears throat> excuse me, joint problems uh, later on. And when I say later on, mammary cancer, as I mentioned, that's occurring, you know, 10 years down the track. Joint problems in dogs are occurring at around about two to five years of age, so much earlier. And so the thought is that actually desexing these large breed dogs that are prone to those conditions, we should be delaying the onset, of, uh, the time of desexing until they're probably 12 months of age. Um, and there's some evidence that suggests that there is a decreased risk associated then. However, with smaller dogs, there's it's not as convincing. And I think it's more sticking with the idea that mammary cancer is going to be their greater risk rather than joint problems later on. Now, a lot of people, one of the kind of arguments against that early desexing is a risk of urinary incontinence in female dogs after they've been desexed. And that can come on within six to 12 months. Sometimes it's later and it generally is persistent then for the rest of their life. There is some um, medication therapy that can be used for that or some hormonal therapy. And the reason for that is it's thought that the sex hormones, estrogen, testosterone, have a, uh, an impact on the tone of the muscle around the neck of the bladder. So because there's no background level of sex hormones in the body, being the estrogen, um, then these dogs are more prone to developing urinary incontinence. So, you know, they'll get up and they've been asleep and there's a, a wet patch there that um, you have to clean up for them. So... Yes, that's a, that's a risk, but that can also occur at any age of desexing. 
Um, so I would generally look at size of the dog as my best predictor and what's the risk of joint problems rather than just, oh, let's delay uh, desexing until they're much older. And as always, have that conversation with your vet if you've got puppies. Um, they'll talk a little bit about this in puppy preschool, but essentially you've got to have that conversation. What's the best time? What's the optimal time? Now, the only other thing I should mention is that with registration of your dog and council registration, because all pets are microchipped and that's a great thing, it means that um, the council will want you to register your dog at six months of age. If they're not desexed, you pay a higher lifetime fee for an undesexed dog, regardless of whether you're planning to do it later. So you need to have um, a letter stating a medical reason why your uh, desexing is being delayed. Otherwise, you're going to be paying the uh, lifetime registration fee for an undesexed dog. So after today, my dogs will be registered as desexed. I'll pay the one-off. It's a lower fee. And then hopefully we don't have any health problems down the track. Oh, good stuff, Tom. Well, yep. that's a pet chat for this week. Oh, welcome back, 2023. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, thanks so much. We we'll, might catch you guys next week or maybe the uh, week after. Yeah, next week we um, we just got some uh, appointments that um, none of the vets are able to be here next week. We'll have to have to have a week off. Sorry right. to do that that's first right. week back. But pet chat, in a, I thought it was just me, but pet chat in a fortnight's time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.